You seem hungry. Good thing your table is ready with Fatterday Omaha. Fatterday Omaha. Eat this. Hey, this is Dave with Fatterday Omaha. We are here on another episode of our Food Recognized Food format, where we talk to people in and around the restaurant industry about uh, all sorts of things. My guest today is going to uh, take us to an area that we haven't taken the show, but it's a very important one for health, for safety, and to make sure that the uh, food that makes it to a plate is uh, enjoyable both during and after the meal. And so I have Chef Doug Crispin here from Metropolitan Community College Culinary Arts Institute. Doug, how you doing? Doing good. Thanks oh, for having me, Dave. Thankfully, uh, Brian O'Malley, uh, we've had him on the show and uh, such a nice guy. And I had reached out to him and I said, hey, do, do you have anybody that can help us out with sanitation and and good practices around cooking and uh, these type of things to keep people safe? And if I recall, I think as you go into the culinary arts program at Metro, sanitation is one of the first courses I think you take. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so all of our, uh, that's part of our first block that of courses that students take. It's culinary math, sanitation, and an orientation class because you need that's the basis of knowledge that you need in every single other class, and uh, that will carry them through the rest of their careers. That so. that makes sense, and and you know, obviously, everybody wants to see, you know, as a as a chef, as a cook, you want to see the smile on somebody's face, and you want them to come back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and if they're if they're healthy and happy, they're more much more likely to come back than if it was the the opposite there. Yeah. So, so yeah. So let's uh, let's get into this a little bit. May I have an overview of what you teach in the class, and then maybe we can kind of get into some of the things that uh, in a restaurant environment that you look for in in sanitation and practices, and definitely we'll want to get some things out that uh, maybe some common mistakes or things that people at home might need to to think about. So we'll we'll cover a wide range of topics. So let me know a little bit about the class itself. Yeah, so the class sanitation, uh, we offer an online version as well as an in-person oh, okay. uh, kind of guided version that they're in there with the instructor. It covers all all forms of, of sanitation and, and uh, being safe in the kitchen. They start out learning the basics, hand washing, glove usage, things like that, um, how to set up a three compartment sink. Uh, and then within the first three classes, they'll take the food handler's guide test and they'll get mm. actually, uh, that's, that's the actual test that they take. And then the class is 10 weeks long, okay. so on week 10, they'll take the actual uh, serve safe food manager's uh, exam. And if they pass, they've been certified in, in a, they'll, they'll get their serve safe certificate. And that's a, uh, that's a necessary thing, right? That's that. Um, it's not necessary. It does give you a leg up uh, whenever you're doing <sighs> job interviews and things like that. I mean, anyone who I have ever interviewed who has a serve safe certificate, I'm like, oh, okay, they, they know what they're doing in, in uh, food safety. That's awesome. So, yeah. yeah. And so for, for those that don't know, can you describe these? So every restaurant and I believe food truck, at least in Douglas County, has to have a three compartment sink. Yes. Um, can you kind of describe what that is? Because most people at home have a two compartment sink sure. and I'm betting they probably don't use it quite the same as a three compartment sink yes. in a restaurant. So a three compartment sink is set up the first, it's three sinks that are right next to each other and then a drying area. So the first sink uh, is filled with uh, soapy water, and that's for the cleaning stage, removing any uh, dirt or particles or food pieces from yeah. uh, cutting boards or, or uh, kitchen equipment. The second sink is just set up with water, so that's the rinse sink. The third sink is set up with a sanitizer solution, and that will uh, disinfect any surfaces that come into contact with food. Uh, and then we have a drying area. Uh, everything that goes through the, the three compartment sink needs to be air dried. That way you don't put, you know, stack uh, mixing bowls on top of each other and then they have moisture, which could develop harmful pathogens or bacteria or something like that. Gotcha. So if you're if you're drying things at home in your drying rack, probably the tip there is maybe don't stack things up. You want them separate so there's not a yep. water layer between things. Absolutely. Gotcha. And. Yeah. and and so from a uh, a dishwasher perspective, so does the dishwasher satisfy 
all of those things as well. And the the sink then is for you know hand wash items because you have you know good knives or cutting boards or things that you may not want to put in the in the dishwasher. Yes, absolutely. We don't put any any wooden cutting boards. Definitely no knives. That'll just ruin the integrity of your cutting edge if you put it into the into the dishwasher as it's rattling around in there with. <laughs> with uh you know the forks and the spoon you know all the other stuff so dishwashers do sanitize they get up to about 180 182 degrees fahrenheit and so that will sanitize uh, any of the surfaces or food contact gotcha and of course so in your in your sink i'm guessing you're probably trying to run that water about as hot as you can uh, as you can stand (laughs) yeah yeah some of ours get really hot and i have to tell our students you know turn a little cold water on so you don't scorch your hands yeah yeah that's that's a good point too so as you're in the kitchen and you're going to have to wash your hands fairly often i'm guessing too maybe what's a good guideline on that water temperature so you're not just you know damaging (laughs) damaging yourself here yeah really what i say is just as hot as you can stand it but that's and that kind of brings us into an important thing is what components do a hands does a, does a proper hand sink need in a, a restaurant kitchen they are five components so they need hot and cold running water paper towels obviously soap mm-hmm. uh, a trash can and then all hand washing areas need signage saying that all employees must wash their hands before returning to work ah, so gotcha. if they don't have one of those five components you'll get points off from the the health inspection gotcha yeah. gotcha and if you don't have all of those then that could definitely be a critical violation when should you wash your hands when you're in the kitchen so that's the first thing you should do when you get into the kitchen is wash your hands Also, you should wash your hands if you've been working with any sort of proteins, you know, if you're changing tasks a lot of times. uh, I like to wash my hands even after I take gloves off sometimes. Mm. Uh, They get, you know, you wear gloves for long enough and they start to get sweaty and then you go to touch other things. So, you know, people uh, don't really think of that, but I, I always wash my hands usually after I take gloves off too. But definitely proteins, any sort of seafood, chicken, uh, after you've been working with those would be would be great yeah with uh with cutting boards i, I know there's a you know a common practice or good practice to prepare your proteins on one cutting board and yep. vegetables on another to avoid that same cross contamination yep. correct yep i always do uh proteins on a plastic cutting board too wood is very porous mm. and so some of those uh juices can kind of get trapped in that so yeah proteins actually at the ica we have variety of different colored cutting boards ah okay Uh, so red is for raw proteins such as beef pork things like that we have blue cutting boards for fish Uh, yellow cutting boards is for all poultry Uh, white cutting boards are for ready to eat foods and then we have green cutting boards for vegetables and fruits oh interesting so so even uh segmenting your your different protein types from yeah. each other. Can you go into that a little bit? Is that because the the bacteria or, or other things are different between those protein types? Or is that just, you know, so that you're making sure that, you know, maybe your fish doesn't pick up beef juice? So, you know, is some of, yeah. is some of that different, a flavor question there? Sure. Different proteins do have different harmful qualities about them. So, yeah. right, chick, salmonella is associated with chicken. Sure. Typically, uh, E. coli is associated a lot of times with beef. Is it okay to prep your vegetables first on a cutting board and then your protein and then wash? Or do you still want to make sure that you have two completely separate cutting boards, maybe for the home cook? I know in the restaurant, you probably want to make sure those those two things never meet. I mean, I do at home have two completely separate cutting boards just for my proteins all on one. Mm-hmm. I don't separate at home my chicken board from my beef board or anything like that. But sure. I do have one cutting plastic cutting board that I do use just for proteins. Uh, and then one that I use for everything else. Uh, that is my my one for vegetable cutlery and all that stuff is wooden uh, because I just I, I like that with the knives I have at home. But it's it's not necessary. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And and of course the by extension then too you want to make sure that you are either washing your knife or using a different knife when you switch between those things Absolutely. as well as your cutting board, right? Yeah. What else do you pick up in the class as far as common common practices? Yeah, so we talk a lot about cooking temperatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooking temperatures, holding temperatures, right? So if you're preparing a large batch of something that's going to be served in a off of a, a tray line or yeah. um, 
cafeteria style, something like that, that's going to be in steam wells uh, or held in a hot box for a catered event. Yeah. Um, we need to talk about holding temperatures. So everything needs to be uh, cooked to about 165 degrees for holding temperatures. That's something that tends to get lost a lot of times, right? Yeah. Yeah, people aren't temping things uh, before they put them into a hot box and making sure they're up to that 165 degree mark. Yeah. It could be problematic, right? Because they do tend to lose temperature in the hot box. And then you take it out and serve 50 people out of a hotel pan. And if something's not at the proper temperature or in that temperature danger zone, that's something that we talk a lot about too. Yeah. The temperature danger zone is about 41 degrees to 135 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in that temperature, it's just much more likely uh, that you're going to get bacteria growth or, or harmful pathogen growth on food. So let's see. So 100, right, 160, 165, uh, definitely for pork and chicken. Uh, pork is actually important. 145. 145. Yeah. Okay. Chicken is definitely 165. Okay. Yeah. Ground beef about 155. Then we go into restaurants and we order a burger rare. Right. right. So most menus have that disclaimer on the bottom. Consuming raw or undercooked uh, <laughs> yes. foods can be potentially harmful, right? So if they have that disclaimer uh, on menus, then they can, you know, a restaurant can make a tuna tartare or a, a rare or medium rare burger. So as the as the yeah. consumer, you're accepting uh, a little bit of potential risk there. But, yeah. uh, you know, the nice part about it, especially our, our local restaurants is a lot of times, you know, the, the chefs are really focusing on making sure they, they know where their ingredients are, are coming exactly. from or maybe grinding things in house, uh, you know, for a burger or yep. something like that. Absolutely. So, because that's that's one of the things with burger um, or, or any ground meat, right, is in the grinding process, there's the possibility of picking up some more bacteria and folding it into the mix versus a solid piece of say a ribeye or something sure. where you're searing the outside which you know hopefully is you know getting rid of anything on the outside and the interior is is likely yep. better correct yes that's correct gotcha yep. and then and then with oh sorry I, I, you're gonna add a little note there and i think i i missed no that. just talking about uh um going back to to temperatures you yeah know, that's that's um we spend a lot of time on that Right, because our students have knife kits and they have uh, thermometers in their knife kits and mm. they're learning about uh, cooking temperatures. And in our introduction to professional cooking uh, class, they're temping different meats and, and learning that too. So they're getting the knowledge part in our sanitation class and then actually getting to put that uh, into play in our, our lab culinary classes. That's so. awesome. How about something like a, uh, like a steak, like a, well, like a ribeye or something. Cause what sure. one, one thirty five puts us in a medium rare type section, yep. right? About and that's one thirty to one thirty five, yeah. and, and that's well below the one sixty five. So is that where the, the disclaimer on a menu may come into play or, um, is it safer at that temperature maybe than some other proteins or how does that, yeah, I would say play it's, in? Uh, it depends on, on the place, right, that you're going. My wife likes rare beef and I like medium rare. So, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on where you're at. I think it's totally safe to consume beef that way. I, I don't like well done or sure. uh, beef <laughs> or any, anything like that. So, yeah, if you have a, a, a bunch of steaks or something that, that are in a hot box, are you able to hold them at that, you know, lower temperature to keep them at a medium rare? Or how do you yeah, how so do you facilitate that? Holding steaks in a hot box is a whole nother thing. I, I probably ah. wouldn't recommend that just because if you're holding a product, it does need to be at, at 165 to serve it later. Uh -huh. uh, so steak probably isn't the good, the best thing to choose for a, a catered event. Otherwise, I'd just be doing them right off the grill right and, and gotcha. going out yeah so maybe more something like like sides like yeah, a, mashed like, potatoes something yeah. like that mac and cheese yeah that makes sense that makes yeah. sense okay cool and then so and same thing with the uh, with the steam table where you have water under there keeping the the underside of the pans hot and yeah maybe how does that translate so and as we talk now the temperatures are, are getting a little nicer outside than they have been yeah. um we were talking right before we started this about uh, you know possibly deviled eggs at a picnic or yeah. or something along those lines so maybe for for you know the home cook that's either serving in their house in a 68 degree house or or outside 
what are some good practices for folks that are going to be serving kind of more long-term things at home that don't have a hot box, don't have a steam table, and or conversely, maybe just don't have a refrigerator plugged in with a you know 700-foot cord to the end of their backyard? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think just make sure that you're keeping hot food hot and cold food cold, right? Putting those deviled eggs on a, they make these things, you know, trays that sit on top of a tray of ice or something like that. Yeah, uh, would be. I think they even have little indentations for each of the eggs. Ah, uh, yes. Keep them in that. Pulling things out whenever they're just right before you're you're ready to serve from the fridge. Not letting things get too hot. Stirring things is a is a great way to keep things hot. If you're using, oh yeah, um, like a, a a chafing dish, right? You're yeah. stirring because the product on top is getting a little bit. Uh, colder and the product on the bottom with the that's closer to the sterno flames yeah um, and the steam that's developing is is going to be uh, keeping a temperature at the bottom of that pan so stirring things frequently is a great idea that's that's a really good idea too because i mean honestly just from a um enjoyment perspective for the the person that's eating the food too if you're stirring it you're going to maintain kind of that uniform consistency so yeah. you don't get a, a maybe a skin that builds up on the top sure. of the product yeah. and then have something that's scorched on the bottom yep absolutely <laughs> the other thing is to after four hours if food's been sitting out even if it's been held at the proper temperature mm. for over four hours it needs to be thrown out Gotcha. Yeah. So, or cooled down very quickly so that it's safe for later consumption. So, so four hours is a good mark. Even if you're holding it at that 165, it's like, yep. okay, it's just been out too long, too many things in the air, yep. possibly people, you know, touching things or whatever. Yep. And then, yep. and that makes sense. Does, does that also apply to something like a tray of rolls or something like that? You no, know, if you leave not so bread much. Out. A, no, I wouldn't say it applies to, to something like that, but something that's being, uh, held hot i would say that's that's where the most important part there gotcha and so you said that uh, each student there gets a gets a thermometer in in their kit and are they using a uh, you know an analog mirror are they using like a instant read or what what comes instant in there? read digital thermometer perfect uh, yeah those are great we also need to make sure that they're calibrated mm. right because mm -hmm. they tend to get uh uncalibrated and the best way to calibrate a thermometer is to stick it in uh ice water solution ah. right and make sure that it gets uh down to 32 or below gotcha yeah. gotcha so, so oh if somebody's looking at a thermometer is there a a range that you probably want it to be able to read we said about 30 32 etc and then yeah so there's different ranges candy thermometers obviously go oh, yeah. high temperatures for working with candy and things like that but i think uh, a thermometer that goes up to you know, anywhere from around 250, I think that's that's plenty of range if you're using it mostly for proteins. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think for bread, I, I find mine uh, a little handy as well. I think there's one flour company out there that really likes their bread done about 195. Mm -hmm. But I think like what 195 to like 205, somewhere in there's kind of a common, hey, my yep. bread is done yep. type temperature. Yep. Or if you're cooking something like like a brisket, you need that to get up to a higher temperature than maybe a, you know, a medium rare steak because yep. you need that fat to, yeah. to render Absolutely. differently. I mean, so, Amazon's got tons of different types of thermometers, all different ranges. You don't need to spend a lot of money, but yeah. I think I just got a new one off of there because mine wasn't calibrating right. And I spent 15 to 16 bucks on one. So well worth it for, you know, $15 for, for safety. You're probably going to spend that on a few rolls of paper towels or, you know, those type of things. Sure. So well, well worth it. And, you know, frankly, a super handy tool in the kitchen just to check and see if things are where you think they yeah. are. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. When you're poking things with the thermometer, you know, especially proteins and things like that, you know, a lot of times for a steak or something like that, it's like, oh, don't don't cut it, don't touch it because all the juices are going to run out. Is that something sure. you have to worry about when you're temping things? It is. Yeah. Uh, you want to go into the the thickest part of the the protein, right? I also teach introduction to professional cooking ah. at the ICA, and uh -huh. uh, this week on Monday we had roast day, so oh. all of our students roasted a chicken, right? Uh -huh. And everyone's sticking the thermometer into the breast because that's in their mind that it is a, a thick part of the chicken, right? Yeah. Uh, but really, you want to be sticking it right into the thigh, close to the bone, ah. um, and that's going to be the best place to to give you a an accurate reading on what the internal temperature of your chicken is. Generally inserting it into the thickest part of the of the protein is, is best. And you will get some some juices that uh leach out, but 
that's okay. That's the, <laughs> the, the nature of it and, and yeah. in favor of making sure it's done. And is yeah. that the same approach if you're using, say, a, a probe thermometer, one that stays in the, the roast or the chicken and maybe either has a cord or Bluetooth yes. and, and you just leave in there? Yeah. So every Christmas I do a prime rib and yeah, I have, yeah. I have one of the probe thermometers that comes to like a little screen on the outside yeah. of my oven and I, yeah, into the thickest part. Gotcha. And, and for something thicker, I have, uh, you know, some people stick that in uh, straight down or I have seen trying to get things more parallel as, as much as, as possible. So you're mm -hmm. coming at it at an angle so that you're trying to get into the center of that and it stays in there. Is there a, yeah, a preferred? Say, if there's a bone, try and get it close to the bone. If you're uh -huh. doing a bone in prime rib or something like that, close to the, to the bone is good. But yeah, it doesn't matter parallel or wherever you stick it in. It's, as long as it's, it's secure. As long as it's in there and, and uh, you're getting a good accurate reading of the internal temp temperature of the of the product. This one isn't so much into the sanitation area necessarily, but since we're talking thermometers, what what about carryover? So yeah. um, if I'm cooking a, a roast or a steak, my alarm goes off on my probe thermometer at, at 135 what then happens after I take that out of the oven? Yeah, so if you pull it at 135, you're going to carry over probably 10 to 12 to 15 degrees. Uh, so I would always set that probe thermometer, if you're doing a, a roast or something, set it a little bit below to account for that carryover cooking. Uh, that's actually part of an exercise I just did on Monday with my students. We, uh, we were grilling it's a combination day that we do grill and roast. Oh, nice. So we were grilling steaks, and as soon as we pulled, uh, we grilled ribeyes. As soon as we pulled that ribeye off the the grill, we yeah. stuck a thermometer in it. We all watched the carryover cooking, and it carried over about oh eleven to twelve degrees. I was telling them to go for medium rare because that's what they're going to be uh, tested on when their final comes around on week ten. Yeah. So we pulled it at around, I think it was one eighteen. Right. And watched yeah. it carry over and get close to about that, that 130 mark. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's a great exercise for them to really, then they can see the carryover cooking happening right in front of them on the digital thermometer. That's awesome. And they were all just like, wow, I didn't realize <laughs> that I had to pull it that soon. Like that's a lot. Yeah. So, well, yeah. sure. Especially, and you know, at a, at a restaurant, if you want to be that, that, you know, home pro grilling person or, yeah. or whatever, yeah. and you're like, oh, I'm going to serve everybody a nice medium rare steak. You, you pull it at 135, it carries over 12 degrees. And now you're yeah. in very different territory. Yeah, absolutely. And from what I understand, part of that is the, the more the exterior or towards the outside is likely to be a little bit hotter. And then the juices will uh, kind of absorb and redistribute yeah, within redistribute the protein throughout the, the fibers, the myofibrils of the protein is a the technical term. I like it. Yeah. And the, the juices will redistribute uh, throughout that as it sits. That's awesome. Right. When you pull a steak off and you and you're kind of touching it. Yeah. It seems really um, firm. Right. But it'll it'll relax a little bit. That's kind of one thing I was talking with them about, too, is, you know, you work a grill station for long enough and you'll be able to do this with a gloved hand. Right. And just by touch, uh, feel the, the sides of those steaks and, and be able to to feel what the internal temperature is because you've just done it so many times in repetition. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that I've been learning about pizza at home. Oh, yeah. And, you know, cooking, been trying to cook uh, several pizzas weekly, but yeah. that's a lot different than a restaurant scenario where I might cook four pizzas a week. Yeah. The person at the restaurant is going to cook for the first half hour. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, same thing with the steak. They're going to be, you know, learning so fast because it's steak yep. after steak. Um, Do you have a, one of the uni pizza ovens or something like that? Not yet. Oh. I, that is so I, I use a, uh, a baking steel, which, which yep. I really like. I get some pretty good results out of that and some good uh, deep dish pans that uh, yeah. for, for doing that style, the, the uni or the rock box or something is, is, coming yeah, i think I it's got that. My, gonna happen all my buddies got me that for my wedding a couple oh, years awesome. ago and and i have had so much fun with that thing that's that's yeah. gonna have to be the next deal because it hits those temperatures that yeah. you really want for oh, i know and you can you know you can roast a whole bird in there you can do all sorts of things with that that's wild yeah. we, we might have to talk ovens after this yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> well you you had mentioned um learning by by touch too so i i know there's a um 
a practice some folks do of uh, using your your hand and pinching like your your yeah. thumb and index finger together and then kind of poking yeah. the the meat of your own hand by by your thumb and choosing fingers and yep. you go towards your pinky and that's more done because your hand's yep. more firm. Yep. Is, how do you feel about that accuracy? I think it's a good, we, we touch on it a little bit in our lecture. I think it's a good exercise to get them familiar with what the, the protein will feel like, mm-hmm. but uh, do I use that often? No, I don't. <laughs> so, gotcha. So is it better off either the thermometer or if you've, if you're cooking, you know, you know, yeah. 20, 30 steaks in a shift, yeah. you're, you're probably just used to, hey, yeah. this is start what it feels off, like. That, that's done. why we give everyone a thermometer so that they can start off with the, with the thermometer and, and really understand, have that understanding before they start moving on. You know, that gauging doneness of steaks by feeling comes after tons of repetition. So. And, and no shame in the thermometer game not here. At at no, any. not at all. <laughs> not at all. Does, does the same texture and, and, you know, feeling there apply to chicken or fish or those things because that's a very different protein from beef yeah uh, and there's many different types of fish right true so there's lots of fish you know tuna or swordfish is a much denser fish than say you know a flatfish like fluke or flounder or something like that so yeah chicken generally always it's going to be very firm when it's cooked if you're roasting it with the bone on versus just boneless, mm. skinless chicken breast, right? So that's it, it is a little bit different feeling. Um, with chicken, I usually always rely on the thermometer. That's a, that's a good call, and yep. definitely one of those proteins um, that you want to take great care to make sure that it's yeah. all the way done. Yeah, so nobody you can gets sick. consume, you know, consuming other things uh, undercooked, like beef or pork, even is not so much a big issue, but chicken, absolutely. Gotcha. Since we're in the area of chicken here too. So after you have prepped your your chicken and we talked about earlier here using a protein specific cutting board. So I've put my chicken on my cutting board. Mm -hmm. I've used a knife that I'm only going to use for that. Should I do anything about sanitizing the the area that I was prepping that with? Even the sink that you cut, you know, you buy a whole chicken or something and you're which is how I like to buy chickens. I like to yeah. buy whole chicken. It's much you can more. Make stock you get, later yeah, too. You can make stock. Uh, I have a big lobster pot at home that nice. I, when I get you know six or seven carcasses saved up, then I'll make a bunch of stock Ooh. and freeze it into blocks in my freezer. And so, nice. but anyways, yeah, you you definitely want to sanitize uh, the whole area around, even the sink that you've cut that bag open in, and because you may have splattered some juices around or something like that. So absolutely. Uh, hot soapy water and a sponge works great. Gotcha. So that was yep. that was going to be my very next question was what should I use? So hot soapy water is is and, a good thing. Yep, and a sponge, and then just make sure you dry that whole area down, and yeah, you'll be good to go. And when I'm done with my sponge, there should I make sure I rinse out the sponge really well yep. and wring it out so nothing's yeah. sitting in there? Absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah, and, good practice. And, and how about um, you know using any? So if I have my my cutting board on on a table or um, I'm I'm prepping at the restaurant, do you use anything like you know? A a vinegar spray or diluted bleach or should there be anything besides soapy water or soapy yeah, water could, sufficient i do keep like a little vinegar spray you could do just a cap full of bleach in uh i think it's uh, about a gallon of water to make just a, a quick uh, sanitizing spray yeah that would be great i love vinegar because it's acidic so it's mm-hmm. uh you know going to take care of some of those bacteria you know with the bleach solution of course you want to make sure it's diluted enough because yeah. you don't want to be eating bleach sure um but the you know the vinegar it's like if you accidentally get some vinegar in your food okay yeah you know so exactly for vinegar is it good for salmonella and and these other things is it acidic enough to, yeah, to handle highly that? acidic things are gonna kill all that stuff sometimes even on my cutting boards that have that i've been using for a while and they get lots of the cut marks yeah in them, which by the way you want to if that happens and you have a cutting board that's really aged and you know you've been using it for years and years and years you yeah. probably want to think about getting a new cutting board because it's making that plastic cutting board very porous and mm. the meat juices will get trapped in there and it's hard even if you're sanitizing and scrubbing it it's it's hard to get them all out yeah uh, that is something that that douglas county health inspectors do look at is is the age and wear of your cutting boards when they come in so professional kitchens want to make sure that that's something that they're that they're keeping 
uh, in mind. And, and especially yeah. if you do have any cuts in your cutting board and you see something that is a different color <laughs> than yeah. the color of the cutting board, that might be mold or something yep. else. You really need to clean yeah. that very well, right? Yeah, but I was going with that. Sometimes on my cutting boards, I'll cut a lemon in half and just rub the whole lemon oh, all over acidity. and it gets in that, those little crevices and yeah. and yeah, it'll kill any harmful pathogens. And that's nice to know too that, you know, we've, we've talked about two natural things that a human could eat that you can use for cleaning so you're not yep. you know spraying things down with a yeah. window cleaner or yeah. something like that because because then you might have the converse problem of now you've introduced a and chemical, chemical hazard yeah, yeah. A chemical hazard versus a bacterial hazard yeah. that brings us to another point so we this is something else a big thing we talk about in sanitation is the different types of hazards so mm. there's chemical hazards physical hazards um, and then biological hazards that can contaminate food. Uh, so chemical, obviously things like bleach, glass cleaner, biological would be things like salmonella or E. coli, sneezing on a food or something like that could be a go into a biological uh, hazard area. And then physical yeah. hazards, things like plastic wrap, pieces of hair, fingernails, you know. Yeah. So actual physical things that are that are present in food. Wow. Wow. So I definitely want to talk to uh, about the, the physical hazards as well, because I have a question kind of about plastic wrap and wrappers on food. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, regarding the chemical hazards. Yeah. So uh, somebody that is is cleaning their kitchen, be they, you know, in, in the industry or at home, um, there's going to be times when maybe they're going to use a scouring product or degreaser. Uh, oh, degreaser or like right. Sure. So, yeah. Something that certainly isn't consumable. Mm -hmm. What are some things you want to do maybe to the area before you start applying these chemicals, yeah. like, you know, getting things out of the way or whatever. And then how do you best manage things? Like, especially if you're using a spray bottle or uh, if it is a scouring uh, powder product, um, avoiding overspray or powder getting into ingredients or things like that maybe how how should you go about using those chemical products yeah so make sure all food is put away obviously covered um, not in the area that you're cleaning you also want to be careful about the dish area right when mm. you're bringing a lot of times we'll remove our hood vents mm -hmm. right and we'll spray them down with degreaser and let them sit for a little while and then take them to the dish area and run them through three three compartment sink or, or something like that to remove all that grease um, you want to be sure that you're totally sanitizing that whole area before you start washing other equipment that that could be food contact surfaces that makes sense uh, but definitely remove all all food from anywhere that you're using those chemicals make sure thing, things are well covered put away in refrigerators things like that that makes sense. And yeah, yeah, because you don't want your, I don't know, basket of garlic or, or apples or, or something like that. And then you start spraying no, some type totally, of cleaner. And totally it... get that out of the area, even cover it with a uh, plastic wrap or something like that. Um, but yeah, get it, get it out of, out of that, that area. That makes sure. sense. And then, yeah. so going into the, the physical hazards area. So I have seen folks, if you have, let's say a, a cheese that is, is wrapped in plastic mm -hmm. or, or butter um, from a, you know, home perspective, usually kind of comes in a paper wrapper or sure. things like that. And I see folks maybe take a chef's knife and just cut a block off with the wrapper yeah. still on it. Yeah, you want to be careful about that. Yeah, because yeah. one of the things I was wondering is, is there, there is the possibility that part of the, the wrapper rips and then gets into the soft product yeah. and stays there so yeah. kind of tell me a little bit about you know the physical hazards we should watch yeah out for. i mean physical hazards are they happen probably one of the most frequent mm. right whenever we get a hair in our food or someone uh, is working in the kitchen with long fingernails and then they're they chip a fingernail and Ooh, it, and it goes piece. into that food that they're prepping um so that is a big one yeah i wouldn't cut through any uh packaging like that mm -hmm. uh, where you're cutting through the food as well also a big one is whenever we have hotel pans hotel pan is just a word for you know a food container that holds uh, yeah. a, a metal hotel pan right? kind of a stainless steel slightly deep yeah, dish uh, exactly. pan yeah yeah and so when that's plastic wrapped on the line and then we tear that plastic wrap to get into it you want to make sure you're removing that plastic wrap from the whole pan ah. right not just tearing into the pan 
and leaving that plastic wrap on there, right? That's a kind of a bad habit. That, I could see that because it could even catch on an edge and, yep. and you thought you got it all, but like 98% came off, but you still got a piece kind of, exactly. and it's clear. So if it falls into a tomato sauce, yep. good luck. That's one of my biggest pet peeves when I was, when I used to um, work in management and, and kitchens is, you know, it's, and it's a sign of laziness too. You know, we're so busy sure. in kitchens that, there's always so many things going on and they're just trying to tear into that prep and get it as soon as possible. But it's always something that, that uh, you want to correct if, if you see that because it's so easy to get plastic wrap in food and it's very hard to detect, right? Yeah. Plastic wrap on top of a tomato sauce, it's clear. You don't see that <laughs> it's there but until someone gets it in their pizza, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's a big one. Uh, I talked about fingernails. That's a big one. Wearing a proper head covering, mm. um, whether it be a hairnet or... A hat or a hat. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just to yeah. keep random hair from, you yeah. know, because it doesn't matter how short your hair is, you probably shed a little bit at some point yeah. and, or if so, you, you know, brush your, brush your hair or yeah. whatever. And uh, one of my other classes I teach is nutrition at the ICA. Mm. And we took yesterday, we took uh, my nutrition class to Nebraska Medicine uh, and we toured the food services area there and all of, you know, before we went into any area all the students had to put hair nets on oh yeah right? because uh they're walking around and and all that stuff so yeah they were all kind of like i mean they're they're used to it because sure. we, we do uniform checks and everything at, at the ica but uh you know that's that's a big part of it in in practice you know we had talked about hair fingernails or those type of things so we're all human from time to time it's like oh my eye itches or oh i've got to you know you know scratch the back of my head because yeah. whatever how do you teach to be cognizant of those things that, you know, maybe people just do reflexively. Yeah. But if you start rubbing your face and you got oil on your face, at first of all, you might end up with like jalapeno yeah. juice in your, in your eye yeah. and you're in big trouble there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how, how do you kind of teach folks to, to manage those reflexive behaviors and make sure that they're still staying clean? Reminders, reminders, reminders. Every time I see someone touch their face or, you know, I, I wear glasses, I have to adjust my glasses often. And yeah, anytime I see students do that and then not washing their hands immediately afterwards, uh, we have to remind them of that. That's something that all of our instructors are very good about. Also phones, right? Oh, yeah. Our phone is some of the, one of the dirtiest things that we carry on us every day. Sure. And, and a lot of people use that for timekeeping and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, so especially in the kitchen, they'll set timers or something for something that's roasting in the oven. And you need to, to wash your hands after you've touched your phone every single time. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. especially if I don't know how many people use their phones for actual phone calls. It's probably yeah. a lower percentage. But if you do, then that's it might be up near your face or like you said, you're touching it with your hands. Yeah. And then there were probably 17 other things that you touched before you came into the kitchen that are kind yeah. of, you know, on your phone, if you will. And so and even if you were to look at your phone screen, there's probably a little little grease, little film oh, yeah. on there. Or, Absolutely. You know, or, or you could have I suppose you could have overspray if you if you have it set on a, a counter or a table or something, there could be food particles that have moved or cleaner particles over to your phone. Yeah. 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 You need to be careful about that. Wiping it down with a screen wipe is a great idea too. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. I and wanted to circle back to one other thing yeah. you were talking about, uh, you know, what types of things are, are good for home cooks to know and that and yes. I, something else popped into my mind. It's properly cooling things down. Ah, right? yeah. So when you make large batches of something, um, and this is something we spend a lot of time on too, because in commercial kitchens, you're not making, you know, a quart of chili. <laughs> you're making Quarts, you know, five gallons, gallons of chili. Yeah. Um, and cooling something that's thick and viscous down very quickly mm -hmm. uh, is something that's really important to keep things out of that temperature danger zone. Ah. Um, so we can do that in a few different ways. Uh, we have ice wands, what we use a lot of times to cool um, all of our chicken stocks and, and brown veal stocks and things down with. It's basically just a, a metal, or not a metal, a plastic wand that you fill up with water and freeze okay. it. And then you can use it to insert it into a large container of stock that you're trying to cool down really quickly and stir it with that ice wand. Almost like a big icicle, but a exactly. reusable one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We can also break things down into smaller containers. Uh-huh. 
or spread them out very thinly in something like risotto if you're trying to cool that down. Oh, yeah. Hard-cooked risotto that you're going to uh, finish off later for service or something. You can cool that down on a, on a sheet tray yeah. or something like that um, so that it's not all sitting on top of each other. Uh, we also don't want to cool things down in the refrigerator because mm. if you take something hot and put it into the refrigerator, you're just bringing up the temperature of everything else that's it's stored next to you in inside that that refrigerator. Goodness, there's a lot of really good points there. So yeah. so if I have something, you know, because we were talking about uh, from a hot hold standpoint on say a large pan or or pot of chili to keep stirring that so that it it maintains a hot temperature throughout, so it's not cold on top and hot on bottom. Mm -hmm. So conversely, when we're talking about cooling something down, so if you happen to have an ice wand, you could use that, or yeah. I think we said, you know, divide up into batches so you have smaller things, more surface area for it to cool. Exactly. And same thing with laying it out on a, like a sheet pan or, or something along those lines. Yeah. So if I have something that is, that is hot like that, especially let's say, you know, I have cooked a, a pot of chili and I need to, to, to cool that down and it's going to be super hot. How quickly do I need to get the temperature down optimally? And how cool does it need to be before I put it in the fridge? Yeah, so this is a good question. So you want to get it down from 135, which is the, the edge of that temperature danger zone, right? Mm -hmm. So 135 to 70 with degrees within uh, two hours. And then you have another four hours to get it from 70 to uh, 40. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. so that'll take it out of that temperature danger zone. And at what temperature am I safe to put it in the fridge? At 40. At 40. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. And then it's out of the temperature danger zone there and, and you're uh, you're good to go. That's interesting because I think this applies to uh, a lot of folks maybe have some leftovers. Let's say they went to a really nice Italian restaurant. Sure. And uh, as any good Nona might do, um, my Italian restaurant overfed me. I have sure. a lasagna and pasta and things like that. How am I going to get a lasagna down to 40 degrees before I put it in the refrigerator? Yeah, uh, the best way to do that is probably just to open the container, vent it a little bit and put it in there. Sometimes if it's something really hot and it's cold outside, I like to use my outdoor, like in ah, the yeah. wintertime. Free cooling yeah, there. A lot of times I'll put things on my on my back table uh, in the winter when it's because it's, it's colder out there. Right? Yeah. But yeah, probably leftover pasta or something. Uh, just get it cooled down and into the refrigerator. Maybe vent that, especially if it's a, a plastic container that they put it into. Oh, yeah. Open that up so it can just vent itself a little bit. Stir it would be a great thing to do to get it cooled down quickly. If my house is 68 degrees and I have this lasagna that I'm trying to get cooled down and it, I can only get it to 68 because it's warm outside, do I need to then sit it on ice before I put it in the refrigerator or do I start to get in an okay place where I'm going to be I probably think okay? I think you're probably okay. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's best. I mean, it's, we're getting a little bit too many steps for sure. the, the home cook here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Usually I just put it right in the, in the fridge and just give it a little vent. Gotcha. So, yeah. we, so as long as you're at, at roughly room temp, uh, give or take a little bit, then yeah. you can get in there. You just yeah. don't want you don't a want hot to put food in the fridge. Yeah. Not a hot soup that you're going to yeah. start putting in there. I love it. So that also brings us to, I'm thinking about soups here and uh, heating up soups. Oh yeah. Right. So um, a lot of places work with places that have soup wells or something like that. You want to make sure that you you heat it again to that 165 uh, degree, uh, but you're heating that up rapidly, right? You're not just taking a cold soup out of the walk-in, or maybe you're using a crock pot or something at home, yeah. right? I would heat that up on the stove uh, rapidly um, and then put it into the, the hot holding container. Ah. I've seen... I actually corrected uh, my mom about this the other day. She was <laughs> uh -oh. heating. She was heating something. She lives in Missouri. She won't be listening. <laughs> uh, she was heating up something, and she put it just take, took it out and directly put it into uh, the crock pot. I think it was like pulled pork or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, well, let's put that into the into the oven and heat it up rapidly, and then put it into the hot holding just to eliminate the amount of time that it's kept at that at those uh, dangerous temperatures. For cooling and heating, you want it out of that that danger zone as as much as possible. You're you're going to cross through that of course exactly. as, as you're moving, but, but you, you want to go through that through that zone rapidly. 
Gotcha. So maybe uh, if, if you have a soup or, or we said pulled pork or something like that, maybe preheat the oven first. Absolutely. Take yeah. it out of the cold, get it up to, you know, a decent temperature and then transfer it to yeah, that. I would even stir it halfway through that process. Right? Yeah. So that you're getting that some of the cold pork that's solidified and in the middle of the pan that it's getting uh, dispersed, right? That makes sense yeah. that that even temperature is important. And I, I suppose just from a texture and enjoyment of what is coming to the plate, if you're if you're stirring and making sure things are heating evenly, that way you don't end up with part of your pulled pork that is dry and like a tree husk, yeah. uh, a tree husk, a bark. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then and then part of it that's, you know, just really one part that's juicy. So if you're if you're reincorporating it then that's that's going to help you out a little yeah. bit so and if folks are coming into this mid episode can you remind us one more time what is the danger zone that we want to stay out of as much as possible yeah, so that's 41 degrees fahrenheit to 135 degrees fahrenheit gotcha yeah. so very very important range for both yeah. uh, heating and cooling yeah keep that in mind when you're doing your barbecues and and uh things this summer is you just want to stay out of that that danger zone as much as possible use things like ice or maybe you need to reheat something right yeah if it's if you uh, stick a thermometer into your pan of pulled pork and it's temping off at 115 or, or 105 or something like that maybe take it back to the oven and, and throw it back in and get it uh, reheated really quickly that's awesome and yeah. and you know we were talking about instant read thermometers and and the fact that it's it's not cheating it's it's a great item it's not like you have to stare at it you know we have these tools for a reason yeah. um you know we're not uh cutting things with with our hands we use knives because they work better you know same thing yeah. with the thermometer uh there is a uh place in town that uh, serves one of the largest, best chicken sandwiches and also chicken on the bone. I have seen them temp every piece of chicken that yeah. comes out of the fryer. And I love that because yeah. I know it's dead on. It's yeah. right. It's safe and delicious. And I just think that's that's really cool. That's great. So, yeah. Um, and a calibrated thermometer at that. Too, uh, yes. Because right? you can have, I see many uh, students that you know, have been using these thermometers for a while and they're getting off temperatures and I'm touching that steak. And I'm like, that, that can't be right. Is your thermometer calibrated? And then we'll stick it in a, in an ice water bath and get it calibrated. And then they get an accurate reading. And they're like, oh, okay. I didn't realize I had to do this every now and then. And so for most thermometers, cause you know, you had said that you picked one up recently for about 15 bucks, not, not yeah. that bad. And so that, that ice water bath. So some, you know, cool water, some ice probably stirred around to make sure it has an even yeah. temperature. Yeah. And then does that typically just shock the 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 reset recalibrate most thermometers then if you do yeah, that then yeah you because you know that the temperature of that ice water that of that ice water is 32 around 32 or maybe a little bit below yeah um, right so you're you know that you're getting an accurate reading then i suppose if it's reading a little higher or a little lower at least that might give you an indication of what it actually yeah. is so and you can some adjust thermometers just get off calibration and it's hard to get them back I've had some that I've just had to retire and, and buy a new one, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, one thing I wanted to, to talk to you about as far as uh, utensils. So one of the things that I've been curious about. So if you're if you're browning ground beef sure. and you have your, you know, utensil that you're stirring that ground beef with, chopping it up a little bit because you threw it in there and it's in a big hunk and you need to, you know, move it apart. Okay. Yep. So. I have seen where folks will, uh, you know, stir the the raw beef there and until it's cooked, and then serve it with the same utensil. Is that oh, a good idea? No, no, I would definitely use a different, a new utensil. Yeah, separate utensils for everything, every single thing you're serving is a, is another good point too. Yeah, um, but yeah, don't don't serve uh, something with the utensil that you've used to to cook something raw. That makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. then you have possible contamination from whatever rawness is left on. Because you you may have put part of that uh, that spatula or that spoon into the the hot area, and maybe part of it's okay, but maybe part of the rest of it. Or you may have gotten raw juices on maybe the handle or, yeah. or something along those yep, lines, exactly. and you want to make sure you're not serving with that same. Exactly. Thing. So yeah. so have two two spoons or two spatulas or whatever, two of those clean yeah. uh, before you're ready to go. Yeah. So. And separate or utensils washing. for everything. If you're serving a taco bar, right, there should be a separate utensil for the cheese, separate utensil for the, for all of that stuff, the lettuce, the tomatoes, right? We had talked about utensils and making sure that those are okay. We've got uh, 
uh, hot hold, we've got cold, we've got our temperature danger zone. Any other of those those physical uh, hazards that maybe we didn't touch on? We talked a little bit about plastic wrap and those kind of things and chemical overspray. Any other thing that uh, folks should watch out for from a from a physical standpoint that comes to mind? Beard guards, mm, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. we have uh, in professional settings beard guards. Whenever people have long beards, they'll have to wear that. Yeah, other physical things. I mean, screws from equipment or something like that could be uh, something. Glass mm. is very something you want to watch out for. I find plastic and and hair to probably be the the two that are the most common. That makes sense. Well, yeah. especially because they're they're hard to see, and I mean, I'm sure folks have found at some point in oh, their life a hair in their food. I but... just thought of something. Yeah. Whenever you're cleaning your grill. I was just talking oh, about this with someone yeah. the other day. Make sure some of those wire brushes that mm -hmm. we clean our grills with. I, I was actually reading a horrible story the other day about someone who had consumed, who had eaten something that came off the grill and it had one of those bristles. Oh, in a it. little wire bristle. Yeah, one of those little wire bristles and they, they ate the food and the wire bristle. Like, oh, I know it just sounds awful, right? That sounds uncomfortable yeah, in so, many ways. So making sure that your your grill cleaning utensils are in good shape and that they're not rusted and, you know, you're not going to have a bristle that's going to break off of that uh, and then potentially get lodged into a a piece of meat or something that you're grilling, right? Yeah. One one of the things that I like to do, and you can tell me maybe if this is a good practice, but uh, a lot of grill brushes, at least for home use, have have the wire section and then they also have a scraper. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, making sure your brush is in good condition and isn't rusted or, or raining <laughs> bristles places. But yeah. um, I like to uh, brush the grill and then turn it over and then scrape it because yeah. in my head, I'm like, okay, well, if a bristle were to come out, that secondary scrape may help reduce the possibility yep. of of that i think that's great practice that's awesome that's yeah. awesome oh uh, speaking of plastic wrap i have seen folks you know and and i'm pretty sure this is common practice in the restaurant industry let's say you're cooking something in the oven in a hotel pan you put it in the pan you put plastic wrap down and then you put foil over the mm -hmm. top but how you know temperature safe is most plastic wrap and does it maybe even differ by type of plastic wrap? Because I don't want melted plastic or plastic vapor in my food. Yeah, uh, most commercial plastic wraps uh, are okay to do that with, especially if you're going to be wrapping them with foil over yeah. top of that uh, for a lot of braises or things like that where you want to contain uh, all that moisture in the, the pan. That's great. You know, I found that some home plastic wraps, especially some of the the lower quality brands, yeah. they'll tend to come apart pretty easily in the oven. So you want to be, yeah, that is a good point. You want to be careful about that. Is there is there a rough temperature guideline? Like, you know, I probably don't want to be cooking at 500 degrees with some yeah. plastic wrap. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's you know, a... I'm not, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure, but I would say anything over 400, three, 375 to 400, you yeah. might get a little questionable if you're using a non-commercial plastic wrap that that makes sense and and sometimes I, I i even like to use and and parchment paper yeah also differs in temperatures by brand mm -hmm. um i have i have one uh parchment paper at home that i think is safe to i want to say it's 450 mm -hmm. but i have a i've had another one that's more like 425 mm -hmm. so um i love using parchment paper as a covering for, for yeah. something right uh we don't have any lids at the ica for any of our pans so we teach our students how to make uh what we call parchment paper cartouche oh yeah nice that's so, a great that's a great name i know yeah. i love that word yeah uh yeah and it's basically just a little kind of looks like you're making like a little like valentine's day heart out of a piece of folded parchment paper yeah and it kind of comes together like that and so that it, it makes a we teach them how to size it to their pan appropriately uh-huh um, and that's a great way to prevent any sort of physical hazards because you just remove the cartouche whenever you're ready you can vent it too by cutting a little hole in oh, the middle sure, of it yeah so if you do want a little venting going on it works well for that too that's awesome yeah the other thing I like about parchment paper, so uh, they're, you know, depending on who you are and and, and your uh, perspective on this, some folks do not like uh, aluminum and, mm -hmm. and maybe don't want aluminum touching their, their food directly. Mm -hmm. um, I know for myself, definitely, if something is acidic, like a tomato sauce, sure. I want to avoid uh, foil directly touching it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I like to do is put that parchment paper down first yep. to separate because it's a, a non-reactive substance. It's 
usually sure. impregnated or covered with with silicone, I, I do believe, which is yeah. a, a natural substance-ish, um, and then putting uh, foil to kind of tighten that lid. Yeah. I think that's great. That's awesome. That's perfect. So speaking of, of plastic real quick, since we're kind of in the plastic wrap area, what about microwaving things in plastic? How do you feel about that? I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it. My wife, I, I package up all of, you know, lunches for her and everything, and we use glass containers. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, um, you know, I've read some things about how uh, chemicals do leach from plastic if you're microwaving and heating it up to, to high temperatures like the microwave gets. Uh, yeah, so I don't love microwaving in plastic. I'm not a fan either. And yeah. and one of the things, and and there's certain places that sell a like vegetables in a, a steaming plastic bag. Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing I do is open those up and then throw it in a glass container. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't do that either. Yeah, no, I don't like taking plastic to to those types of temperatures that my food's going to be in. So yeah, glass is great. You know, a lot of times they'll have a, a snap plastic lid and which is I in my view I feel that it's decent for storage and then just take that lid off yep. and then you know cover it with uh you know parchment or something yep. if, if you're going to cook in it I mean we're yeah. I'm even going through this right now I have a seven month seven month old at oh, home yeah. and so you know we're heating all the milk and the in in bottles and we've uh bought all glass bottles for her just because though that milk uh that bottle warmer gets to high temperatures, right? Sure. And I, I was taking, I, we started with a couple plastic bottles and then I was like, I think we should switch to, to glass, right? Yeah. Um, because those plastic bottles are just coming out of that uh, bottle warmer so hot. And I was like, I don't know if, you know, we're going through all this work to get uh, great uh, milk for her and, and uh, yeah. my wife's pumping and all that stuff. And so, um, yeah, I, I like glass bottles for, for even babies. That, that, yeah. that makes sense. And, and definitely, you know, uh, easy to sanitize cause they'll handle that hot yeah. water and, yeah. and the, that soap and, and those yeah, things the, too. The fat comes off of, uh, glass bottles a lot easier too. They, the fat tends to stick to oh, the plastic, yeah. uh, on the inside. And then I'll be using like a, one of those little like baby brushes to get every little <laughs> crevice of the the plastic bottle too so oh yeah and definitely evidenced if you've ever stored a a meaty uh a spaghetti sauce or something like that and say a white plastic container yeah that plastic container has forever changed yeah it's that, a <laughs> that, that's actually a great point too is is plastic uh holds uh it's a better conductor than glass right mm -hmm. and so storing things that you're trying to cool down in plastic is always going to cool them down at a slower pace than if you would store it in um, a metal or a glass ah. container too ah. so yeah uh -huh. and and one thing so the uh our our announcer the the voice of Saturday omaha uh she had wanted me to ask you a question about water bottles specifically okay so um versus uh just a bottle of water that you buy from the store comes in a plastic bottle and then you have your say metal you know water container that mm -hmm. maybe take to the gym and refill uh you know it has been said that never ever reuse the the capped plastic bottle you yep. should be washing um you know a metal or or whatever water bottle container yep. and then some folks are like oh even that's tough so i don't know if you had to give some people some guidelines on reusable what's the best way to uh be environmentally conscious with yeah. your water containers how's yeah. that so we use gatorade bottles at my house or like the sports gatorade bottles oh, okay like football teams and, and places like that use uh that's what we use at my house because i i don't like single use plastic water bottles at all sure um it's just not environmentally uh, a great idea yeah lots of bottles and, out there running and, around yeah it's just terrible um and it's oftentimes the same it's just tap water right sure <laughs> um yeah uh, we use we, we have a filter on our on our uh, system at home uh -huh. uh, and we just fill up water bottles from from there that but i like the the reusable uh, gatorade water bottles gotcha and just yeah. wash with hot soapy yeah, water just after wash with hot soapy water we, we don't like to put them in the uh, dishwasher just because it gets to that that you know, really dishwashers hot. get to that 180, 182 yeah. for sanitizing purposes. So yeah, we just wash them out with hot soapy water. Well, and the other thing I suppose with a with a larger sports bottle that has a larger mouth, it's mm -hmm. probably easier if you need to get a scrub brush in there or something along those lines yeah. versus a very small necked uh, reusable yeah. one you can't really 
I get just in there. fill it up with a little soap and hot water and just shake, shake the it. heck out of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, speaking of of scrub brushes and sponges and things that you use to apply the hot soapy water, mm-hmm. when should I change those things out? Because I'm assuming at a certain point that sponge is going to get kind of yucky. Yeah. What should I do with it? Yeah. Um, we use green scrubbies at my house. Oh, sure. What we call you know. Yeah. Because it's got a little bit more um, a little abrasiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, we use green scrubby, so I tend to, and I will run them through my dishwasher oh, to okay. get them clean. Sometimes, you it's know, like on the top shelf. Uh, I usually just keep a, one of the little silverware containers, like free, ah. and I'll just like I'll just put it okay. kind of facing up in that, so that it's getting sprayed from the bottom of the dishwasher really well. Gotcha. Um, but when it loses its ability to do what I need it to do anymore, then that's usually when I pitch it. Gotcha. Right, because sometimes they tend to. Like you're scrubbing, trying to get something out of a pan, and it's like this thing isn't working. So that's usually <laughs> when I pitch it. But I, if it's uh, relatively clean and and free of uh, you know debris or anything, I will run it through the dishwasher uh, just to get a little bit more life out of it. Well, and and you know I I'm so glad you brought up uh, physical hazards because that sanitation of the bacterial those those elements is probably the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds. But if if you do have a sponge and it's starting to shed pieces of sponge, sure. get rid of it. Yeah. Right. You steel don't want wool to... could be a, oh, a, yeah. a big one. Goodness. Right. That those kind of steel scrubby things that people use. And a lot of times those will uh, pieces will break off of that. I don't think those are allowed in commercial kitchens anymore. The oh. those steel scrubby yeah. things. Yeah. Just because you might get a steel fiber somewhere. Yeah. And very indigestible there at, yeah. at a certain point. So yep. I, I definitely want to be respectful of your time because you, you actually have a class to teach here coming up in uh, less less than an hour. Yeah, I need to. Yeah, I have a class at 10 o'clock that starts. Goodness so, gracious. And yeah. I don't even know if you've had a chance to get coffee or anything today. Uh, yet, so not I, yet, but I, I'm headed straight there. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Well, but before I let you go, first of all, you know, Chef Doug Christman, thank you so much for this. I This is really cool. It's a little bit of a different topic than we've had on the show, but it's one of the most important things because if you're if your cooking environment your serving environment is is not healthy somebody's going to have a potentially a really bad day or if you're at a, a restaurant and you're you're a guest there and you find that hair in your food or plastic wrap that may be damaging to the the restaurant's image so this yeah. is a very very important topic yeah i mean so, we all consume food right yes all of us consume food and and we need our food to be safe and it's something that that uh, more people need to know about, not just in the restaurant industry. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with me. This has been a truly enjoyable conversation. Um, thank you for everything that that you do as as a teacher. Um, I think our our teachers are uh, vastly underpaid for the value that they provide because you as a teacher are enabling the rest of us to get the skills so that we can go out into the world and and do what we need to do so thank you for what you do for what uh, metropolitan community college especially the culinary arts uh, program in this case does thank you so much for being with me and for what you do it's been a real pleasure thank you for having me well i'll sign it off here uh this has been a super fun episode and this is dave with fatterday omaha and until we eat again Stay hungry. Bye-bye. Our show is recorded and produced by Fatterday Omaha. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, as well as email fatterdayomaha at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay hungry. Fatterday Omaha. Eat this.